last week. Is it, is it me or do, do I sound extra crispy and clear this morning? Uh, it's, it's not my, I, I don't mean me personally. It's not anything I'm doing. It's, I, I, I just feel like what's going on electronically here this morning is, is, is good. So thank you, sound guy who's not paying it. Thank you. Yes. All right. Thumbs up. Good. Um, uh, this morning, as we turn to the word, uh, we'll read in just a moment. Um, I want to, uh, I want to take a moment. Uh, I'm indebted to uh, my professor, Dr. Larkin, for uh, for what I'm about to say this morning. Um, that's a, uh, a pastor's creative way of avoiding a charge of plagiarism. Uh, should you um, should you ever read his commentary on the Book of Acts, which is very very good. Um, there's just so many things he says well, and I'm like, you know what? Thank you, Dr. Larkin. I'm taking your outline. Um, so uh, this is a man who, who, who shared the gospel for uh, 38 years at Columbia International University. He was my Greek professor, and uh, he's just been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, um, which is one of, uh, of, of the worst. Uh, Dr. Larkin, uh, safe and secure in Christ, would say, uh, don't don't weep over me, he would say, instead, contemplate, and this is in keeping what I'm going to share this morning, that, um, that sickness is an opportunity. For many who don't know Christ, when, when they get sick, that's when they ask questions. Uh, so when we pray for the unreached, uh, it is fitting and appropriate to pray for the sick. Um, I think at times there's a, uh, there's kind of a, our prayer list shouldn't be overflowing with stubbed toes and scratched knees, and, um, and, and that can lead to a kind of, I, I think, a, um, maybe a bit of sneering every time somebody says, pray for so-and-so, they're sick. Uh, the, 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 the right way of thinking is we are, we are all sick born into this world. We all need Christ. We all need cure. Uh, as, as the old hymn says, uh, uh, that, that, that Christ is of sin the double cure. Uh, we need God's grace. We need his mercy. So it's fitting and, and good to pray for the sick. And so that's who we're going to pray for this morning. There's, there's no number uh, on the unreached sick, uh, but we're going to pray for them as if they are a solid people group, people group because they have this in common. Uh, so we're going to pray, and then we'll, we'll turn to God's word. Uh, thank you. Lord Jesus, for the opportunity to come before you. Uh, Lord, you are worthy. We admit that whether or not you are in the center of our lives, you deserve to be there. All things were created by you and for you and should reflect your glory. Uh, The truth is we are not often properly orbiting around you. Uh, pursuing our own desires and goals and dreams. Lord, we pray that you would forgive us for that. Thank you for graciously making us aware of that over and over again. So often through your word, regularly through the encouragements of brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, through song, you reach into the heart. Because that's the way you designed music, to, to grab our hearts and attention and turn them. Father, we thank you for, for drawing us back to you. Lord, I want to lift up this morning as we pray those who are unwell. Lord, whether it is uh, struggling with some physical ailment. Lord, all of which, all physical um, uh, uh, inability, all physical unwellness is a sign of the curse that's in the world the fallenness of humanity separated from you, Lord. We need healing. 
but not just that the body would be made well, Lord, but that the spirit would be made well as, as well. The scriptures say that we're dead in sins and trespasses until you come to our rescue. You make us alive and raise us up and seat us with Christ in the heavenly places. Father, we thank you for that. We pray that we would be those who, who are ready with the gospel on our lips to share it, not as a trite answer to those who are truly sick, but as a, a sure anchor for the soul, the righteousness of Christ for those who will meet you sooner rather than later. Lord, as we, as we turn to the word, I pray that you would guard my heart and mind, take all that's unprofitable away. Lord, may we see that we're to build a proper foundation for the gospel and to be creative and to, to share in a, in a creative way so that people will find our gospel presentation fresh. But we pray that in the desire to present freshness, we would not leave behind faithfulness. Father, speak to us, we pray, that, that a generation that's in need of you would, would hear and turn to you and be saved. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I never share um, negative illustrations about my wife as, as a rule. Um, this is more a negative illustration about myself. Um, did I just say I'm going to share an illustration? What a, man, I don't like that when pastors say that. An illustration. Um, just do it. Uh, my, my wife went out. I was away, and she bought a pool. Um, not a pool, like, come home and set this thing up, metal walls, but a pool, like, I, I'm at Walmart or Target, and it's like, oh, look, this box that I can put in a cart and, and take home. And she's like, I bought a pool. And I'm like, no. So, um, right, I come home, and I set it up. And uh, I'm reading the instructions, and it's like, clear a space like 36 feet or something. I'm like, 36 feet? This thing's enormous. Uh, make the ground level and get this and get that, you know, and do all this stuff. Here's different ways. Go buy sand. And I'm like, come on. You, you spent this money on this pool, and now i got to go buy all this stuff. Why doesn't it come with sand in the box if I need that? Why do I need to spend more money? You know, it should all be there. And so I'm like, I don't need to do this. I just throw this thing out there and start filling it up. You know where this is going, right? And the pool, the pool is filling slowly. It's one of these ones where you've got the air ring, and as you fill the water in, the, 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 the pool kind of like makes itself. And, and so, so here's this, this pool, right? And the kids are going to, yay, get in it and swim. Some are fun. It comes with a little plug-in filter. You know, I got the, the filter running out there, the extension cord. And um, as it fills, it fills like this. Right? And it's, it's, it's filling up slowly but surely. And I, I guess, I don't know how pool dynamics works. I am not an engineer. I am a theologian. And, uh, and, and this, this pool is, is filled and dumping water into the yard. Uh, the foundation's important. <laughs> it might not seem important, but it is important. It is, I, I would say... Uh, that it is even more important, perhaps, than what you put on top of it in terms of what goes on top of it being right. Because if the foundation isn't right, everything else will not be right. Uh, Paul, in his missionary journey, is traveling outside of the, the culture and the place where people, when he says, God said, or God created, or God demands... The law says the foundation's not there. 
And so in our culture, if you go out and say, God says, people will say things like, who is God? Or they'll say, I don't believe in God. Or what God? What are you talking about? There's so much that, that, that we desire to communicate and build when it comes to our culture and, and the people that we're trying to reach in our culture. Uh, we're, we're trying to influence our children. We're trying to, uh, to, 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 to build movements of people who are, who are coming to Christ and, and then going back out in their communities and, and sharing. We need to make sure the foundation is sound that it's built. Because if it's not, we can place the gospel on it and it will tilt to the side. Or it will fall. Jesus gave an, or he shared a parable, I was about to say gave an illustration. Uh, he, 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 uh, he shared a parable because he never did anything wrong. He never made any uh, verbal gaffes or anything embarrassing in any of his preaching. Um, uh, he shared about a man who built a house, two men who built houses. One man built his house on rock, and one man built his house on sand. It might have been harder to build on the rock, might have taken longer, but when the storm came, when the testing came, the evidence of the person who made the wiser investment was proved. We want our gospel work. We want our gospel sharing. We want our worldview and our beliefs to be built on a firm foundation so that when we share or when we are tested, we are not shaken to the core. And the storm may come, and it may feel like the house is being shaken. The question is whether or not it has integrity and will stand. We're seeing in our culture the fact that for so long we have assumed the Christian foundations of America. We're seeing the fact that we've assumed the integrity of Christian morality out in our culture. All of the ideas that, that uh, are, are out there which are politically testy, like care for one another, love one another, feed uh, the, the hungry and care for the sick and be tolerant and, and uh, all of these ideas, these come out of Christian ideals. But when the foundation rots out, everything gets lopsided. We look at our culture today and we say, what is going on? It's the fact that the foundation's not secure anymore. When Paul preached the gospel, he built the gospel on a foundation of all that God was doing in the world. Let me, let me just read through Acts chapter 17, and then we'll, we'll share some, some, some points here, uh, some some lessons, and then I'll bring it home with some applications. Uh, it says in verse 16, Paul was waiting for them, for Silas and Timothy, in Athens. Athens, the religious and cultural center of Greece. His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols, chock full of objects of worship. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons. And in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? 
sneering at Paul's teaching. What is this guy going on and on about? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. This is new because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus. This is the uh, religious cultural center, kind of the the place where uh, when people were teaching, they would bring them in, they'd ask them some questions, and they would say, you can continue to teach or or you can no longer teach. What you're teaching is seditious or treasonous or dangerous to our society. Uh, we, We want you out. Um, so they, they kind of license people. So they, they bring him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Explain yourself. Explain your teaching. Lay it out. Now all the Athenians and foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. And we talked about that quite a bit last week. They were consumers of religious truth. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, Being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of all the earth, having determined allotted portions, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is not far from each one of us. And then referring to their own poets, uh, quoting perhaps some of their contemporary literature, if they had had radios um, or or, or iPods back then, these are are on the the top of the playlist right now, or these are the the deep cuts, the golden oldies, you know, that that everybody wants to hear played at the wedding. Uh, 4, verse 28, in him we live and move and have our being. That's not a Bible quote. As even some of your poets have said, we are indeed His offspring, also not a Bible quote, that poem referring to Zeus. Being then God's offspring, you you believe, Athenians, that you're God's offspring. Being God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. Come back and tell us more later. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Quick review of what we talked about last week. Paul is in Athens. He sees a city full of idols. And and knowing that God is calling for worshipers, John 4 says those who worship in spirit and in truth, he is moved with a godly jealousy. A jealousy for God, whose name, by the way, Exodus 34, 14, is jealous. You shall worship no other God, God says. For the Lord, whose name is jealous, is a jealous 
God. Whether or not you have a right to be jealous depends on whether or not the person who is competing for your place or your affections has a right to be there. And when it comes to God, there is only one God. There are no other gods, and therefore God is jealous to be God. I will frequently tell my children in times of conflict, I am dad. And there is no help wanted sign for this position. I'm dad. There is no vacancy here. You do your job and I will do mine. Because no one else in our family has the right to be dad. No one else in the universe has a right to be God to anyone except God. Because Isaiah 43, 11, he says, I, I am the Lord and besides me there is no savior. And so moved to the depths of his being, Paul speaks and he's proclaiming the gospel. Now, is what he says here the whole gospel? I would argue no, it's not. But Luke's already presented the gospel in Luke several times. Uh, he might be saving space here. You know, this is not the day and age of infinite paper. Um, he's got a certain amount of scroll, and he's, he's going to try to conserve words and perhaps ink and, and get it all in there. And so he may be assuming some of the things, uh, or this is what I think is most likely... Luke is focusing on something new that Paul is doing here, being far from the Jewish worldview and mindset. And so he's going to focus on what, Luke, what, what Paul does differently in this place. And he's going to record that as, as, as his emphasis. Paul may have been getting to the center of the gospel, too, when he's interrupted because the speech, his presentation just kinds of, kind of ends. And you need to be ready for that when you're in public speaking. Um, not that I've ever had a, uh, a situation where, where someone has interrupted me and said, please stop, although I have spoken to groups of children where it's just like, okay, we're done here. Let's move on to snack time or crafts or something because you are obviously no longer interested in what I'm saying. Uh, notice that Paul is creative in how he speaks. He's not just going around speaking in, in, in a way like all kinds of other religious communicators. What, what, what happens is as he's preaching and teaching, people take notice of what he's saying, and he moves from the marketplace to, to, the, to the center of where ideas are, are taking place. He goes from the Starbucks to, to the center of the university. Does that make sense? Right? He's, he's preaching and teaching, and people are suddenly interested, and they're like, hey, let's stand up, and we, we're going to take notice of, of what you're doing and saying. Come and, come and, come and share with us. Explain what you're saying, because we, we don't quite get it, but what you're saying is interesting and new and, and kind of fresh. Come speak to us. Evangelism means going to evangelize people where they are. And that means that we cannot always share with the same kind of presentation. There needs to be a relationship built sometimes. There, there needs to be a, a discovering of someone's needs. We need to find out whether they believe in God at all, what their, what their feelings are about a whole host of things if we're going to be effective. Paul, when he speaks, he takes advantage of the fact that there are idols everywhere. He observes that they're very religious, and so he's going he's to present a religious argument to them, engaging people where they are. Sometimes that means we, we need to use uh, what some might consider dirty tricks. 
Uh, I'm going to talk about my friend Art Lembo in just a moment. Uh, he's, a, he's a professor over at Salisbury University, uh, and he works with me on the Eastern Baptist Association's college ministry team. Uh, he's our faculty advisor. He was meeting with the Atheists Club um, a, a while back. He had gone just to, to talk with them and to share some things, and, uh, and they were putting him you know, through his paces and picking on him and talking about all the evil things that Christianity has done in the world, you know, like the Crusades, right? This is pure evil. Now, there are some things about the Crusades that were bad, and, and we ought not to be like, Crusades, yay, you know. Um, but listen, there have been 2,000 years of Christianity, and as, he, as, as Art is sharing about the reasonableness of, of faith and belief and how we don't know everything, and anybody who puts the whole world into a box, you know, is, is over, uh, assume, is, is assuming the full knowledge of humanity about a whole host of things, um, he, he, he was provoked by the fact that they kept on saying oh, all Christianity has ever done is evil, oppress people. And, and so in, in a moment, this occurs to him in his mind, 1 Peter 3.15, right? It says, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Okay? This is, this, is, this is what runs through his mind. And so here's what he does, right? Sharing Christ. Talking about the gospel. Christianity is nothing but evil. And this is what he says. He says, you know what? You know what happens in Salisbury? Um, when the weather is under 32 degrees, you can go to the Code Blue shelter. Right? Because the, the, the county will open their shelter and you can go there and stay. If you are homeless or, you know, you, you, you don't have any heat, you can go and stay here. He said, but when the, when the mercury moves up just one degree to 33 degrees, they close the shelter. So now all of a sudden it's okay to freeze. Because you can still die in 33 degree weather, right? I mean, you can get hypothermia or whatever, you know. I mean, if you're, if you're parked in a particularly shady place, you know, maybe it's even colder there. And you know, there's, boy, I don't know anything about weather, the wind chill factor and all that anyway. This is what he says. He says, where does everybody in Salisbury go when it's 33 degrees and they're cold? They go next door to Halo, which is run by a bunch of evil Christians who can't stand anyone and want to kill everybody in crusades, right? Do they get paid to do that over there? No. They do that at the kindness and generosity of their hearts, which is motivated from the love that God has for them as he saves them from the gospel. And he said, I did my best to shame them for talking ill about the gospel. That's cool. He says, that made them quiet. <laughs> yeah, that's creative. <laughs> Taking the gospel to them. We confront each and every day what I would call uh, the, the, the pod culture, right? You, we, we live in this culture now where we've got our, our iPod, iPhone things, right? Where, where we've got all of our culture completely managed by ourselves coming at us through our phone, right? If you want... Um, ultra-conservative news, you can get all your news from the Drudge Report. If you want liberal news, you can get all your news from the Huffington Post, and you don't ever need to see anything from any website that doesn't fit your worldview. You want to listen to Christian music 24-7, you can just click, turn it on, and have it streamed right to your brain. And you never need to come in contact with a foreign worldview. I believe that it will be very possible in a few years, you won't need to go out for groceries. They will be like, 
you know, you'll, you'll call Giant and say, this is what I want to eat. And they'll be like, we'll come and we'll put it on your door and then we'll call you when we drive away so you never have to see a human. <laughs> Wouldn't that be wonderful? We live in a day and age of worldview shallowness where our culture is becoming increasingly fragmented. And so there are people who live their whole life this super intellectual analytical mind. There are people who are out and out hedonists, who they live purely for pleasure. You've got the adrenaline junkies who it's like every weekend they're like, I'm throwing whatever seasonal gear needs to go on top of my car, on top of my car, and I'm going to go and scare myself to death so that I can feel alive, right? You know, snowboarding, base jumping, whatever it is that they do. You've got the consumers who are like, the iPhone 5 came out. Got to throw my iPhone 4 away because it's junk. I loved it 10 minutes ago, but I need something new, right? You've got your Democrats and your Republicans, your gun toters, your tree huggers, your geeks, nerds, dorks, football people. That's coming, isn't it? Football all the time. And you'll be posting on Facebook, football, yay! Sorry. I wouldn't want to offend you or anything. Taking the gospel to people with faithfulness and freshness means that we need to mix things up. You're not going to convince someone to become a Christian if they're just into football by sharing 17 reasons why God exists with them. Because that's not the way their heart is driven. Let me tell you what. I heard um, an example an illustration, a pastor shared an illustration once in a sermon about, about a man who leaped on a grenade to save his brothers in arms in World War II and trench warfare. And, and by now, that's like become a cliche in our culture. It's like, oh yeah, you know, I've seen that 150 times in a movie. But when you, but when you hear eyewitness testimony, you know, and there's a name attached to it. And it's like this man had a wife and children, and, and these are the, the people who are in his platoon, and he leapt on that grenade. Guys are like, man, that is hardcore. And then someone's like, Jesus leaped on all your sins for you. And he takes all your sins. He absorbs the full wrath of God. There are guys who are like, I don't need 17 reasons. That's awesome. That's cool. That's fresh. Instead of just saying, repent. We have to say repent, but we can do it in a way that's fresh and inviting. Paul engaged them. He's not quite arrested, but he's taken to the decision makers and the shapers of thought. When we think about our culture, we we need to... We need to get creative as Christians. We can't just sit on the sidelines anymore and be like, you're taking our culture away. You're changing, you know, you're changing everything about our society. What we need to do, if, if, if our culture and society is like a river, right, and there's a factory upriver that's dumping poison in the stream, right, and I love the Beatles, but they've done a lot to damage our culture, and so have a whole bunch of other artists, but it's like, if, if the Beatles are taking what's being produced, and I know the Beatles aren't producing any music anymore, this is just, it's the first thing that occurred to me, right, and they're, and they're like, you know, uh, in their little musical factory, dumping this poison in the water that says, relax, turn off your mind and float downstream or whatever, right? That's like uh, tune in, turn on, drop out, right? All that kind of stuff. And they're dumping that poison in the river. What, what somebody could do 
is move further up the river and build another factory and put antidote in the river, right? We need to be out in our culture sharing, being creative, engaging the issues, making movies, books, songs, and you're like, me? Yeah, you. Be involved. Get involved. Create stuff. God is incredibly creative. And he's put that creativity in our hearts. Engage your culture. And do it in a way that gathers attention. Notice what Paul does here. He lays hold of something that he's seen in the culture. He, as he was walking around looking, he saw these altars, and on them they said, an altar to an unknown God. An altar to an unknown God. And so, not knowing who that God was, Paul says to them, I saw this altar. You've got this altar to an unknown God. You, you don't know who he is. I'm going to proclaim him to you. Right? This is very similar to standing up and, and, and saying to a, a college crowd, you might not know the will of God for your life, but I know the will of God for your life. I know in detail what God wants you to do with your life. And they're all like, really? And I'm like, 1 Thessalonians says, abstain from sexual immorality. And they're like, ah, ha, 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 but they're engaged. Right? Because you, you got their attention. Instead of just being like, I'm a preacher guy and I'm going to preach at you. We need to take the gospel out there. Get it out. Into our culture. In creative ways. And you're going to have to think about it. I can't just say, oh, do this because this will work. Because what worked 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 25 years ago, 50 years ago... People get used to that kind of stuff. Oh, here comes that gospel presentation, and they're like, ah, defend, right? If you, if, you, if you think that's not true, that, that people don't learn how to defend, right? What do I do on Saturday morning when the, when the people pull up in my driveway, right? And they're like, we want to share with you. I'm like, I know what's coming. You're going to be like, we're Christians too. And I'm like, no, you're not, you know, no. No, you're not. No, you know. Is Jesus raised from the dead? And they're like, well, we kind of. And I'm like, yes or no. Well, not Christians. Last time they came, right, kids were screaming, dog was barking, my wife was out doing something. I'm like, I don't have time. I wrote a little note that says, we love Jesus. We've got a great relationship with Jesus. If you want to have a better relationship with Jesus, please knock on the door. I don't want to learn about your organization. I just didn't have time. Maybe that was a gospel fail, but I thought it was creative. I did not, I did not take a picture of it and post it on Facebook. Um, although I really, really thought about it. Um, how did I get there? How did I, yeah, all right, all right, all right. Um, legend has it, now I'm not even gonna go there. Um, all right. Um, Paul says, this God who you don't know. You don't, you don't know who this God is. I'm going to proclaim him to you. Uh, Dr. Larkin and others make reference to the fact that there was a plague on, uh, this, this, in, this, in this region at some point, and they sacrificed to this God and sacrificed to that God, and they were, they were trying to, to, to stop the plague. And uh, a, a prophet, not a biblical prophet, named Epimenides said, take a take a flock of black and white sheep and sacrifice them all over the place and sacrifice them to unknown gods. And every time you sacrifice one, make a note of whether you sh 
sacrificed a black or a white sheep on the altar and pray to whatever gods are out there to stay the plague. And supposedly at some point, the plague was stayed, but they were like, we don't know which god this was. And so they were just like, let's just put up a bunch of altars. Now, uh, 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 archaeology has apparently confirmed that this is true. Paul may have found one of these altars. Paul lays hold of this altar, whether or not it's to a false god or to, to the god of the Jews. Uh, uh, he lays hold of it and says, you're worshiping this ignorantly, and I'm going to let you in. I'm going to give you the inside scoop on who the right God is. I'm going I'm to clue you in and let you know. Now, he preaches this sermon, four or five point outline here. Um, I'm going I'm to breeze through it with you guys. This is, this is what he says uh, in verse 24. Okay? He says first that God is God. There is a God who made the world and everything in it, and he is the Lord of heaven and earth. God who made the world is Lord of heaven and earth. Second point is that God does not live in temples. He doesn't live in temples made by man. This is an incredibly biblical idea. By the way, if you ever say things like, it's good to be in the Lord's house, don't worry about that. I'm not sitting there secretly judging you. Nor should the rest of us be judging anybody who says, you know, boy, it was like God was in that place today. That's okay. That's okay, because you find that language elsewhere in the Bible. But, but it's not like when we leave here that God stays here and he's like, come back. Please come worship me. He knows where we are all the time, right? This is what that, that, that the fighter verse says, that, 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 that everything that we do, all God, God knows all things, and we have to give an account for all things. He's not bound to a place, to a region. Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up, not just filling the space behind the people, but it says the train of his robe, just the hem of his garment was filling the temple with glory. God's too big to fit into a teeny tiny place, is what Isaiah is communicating to us. Paul also says in verse 25 that God's not served by human hands. He needs nothing. All of our offerings, it's not like, man, I'm hungry. Somebody offer a sacrifice. Would somebody please bring some offering? So that I could, I could do something. You know, I'm, I'm up in heaven. I'm powerless. I'm, I'm a little short on cash. Could you please put $43 in the offering plate so I could heal this person? Right? Have you guys seen those images on Facebook? There, the, the, um, the doctor is standing there looking at the laptop, and he's like, man, if I just get three more likes, I can give this girl her kidney transplant. That's not the way God works. God is not served by human hands. He needs nothing. He's a gracious creator. And he is actively involved in maintaining and upholding the universe. As a matter of fact, I would say this. Do not believe that your fundamental call and commitment in life is to be served by God. I mean, to, to, yeah, to serve God. Believe that your fundamental commitment is to be humble and to be served by God. Because apart from being served by God, you cannot be saved. This is a radical idea, by the way, and one of the ones at the core of which I think makes Christianity something that man could not have invented. I believe every other religion says we serve God, first and foremost. God is angry, we must placate him, we must serve him, or he will destroy us. If God does not serve you, you cannot be saved. 
He doesn't need a single thing that you have. He gave it to you. He made it. Illustration of this, John 13, 8. Peter says to Jesus, you shall never wash my feet. Peter's, Jesus is going around washing all the disciples' feet. Peter says, no, 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 not me. You will never wash my feet. Jesus answers him and says this, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. The point is not that, that, that they have dirty feet and they need their feet washed. It's that, it's that Jesus is the one who purifies. And if he does not serve them, if he does not go to the cross and take all of their sins upon himself, that they might have his righteousness, they are first and foremost and forever lost. Everyone in the world that's trying to do something for God so that God will be kind to them, is, they're, they're failing to notice and to note the fact that God doesn't need anything done for him. We need something done for us. We need our sins taken away. The old hymn says, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. God's not served by human hands. We may do things for him as a gracious response to the, the good things that he's done for us. We may share the gospel because it is good to share, and we've been called to do that, but we don't do it so that we can be saved, like the Jehovah's Witnesses who knock on our door because they want to be found faithful when Armageddon comes. Ask them how they know they're going to be there on the last day, and they will not say, because Christ took my place. They won't. They have no assurance. They're there so that they can be saved. When we share, we're to share from the place that says, God is good and he has done everything for me. And you need him to save you too. You need him to serve you. God's not served by human hands. Uh, then he moves to the, to the point where he, he, he's, gonna, he's speaking about God's gracious design in the world. This sermon may break in two. I, I don't think it will, but it might. Just newsflash. Um, and, and it says that in, in verse 26, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. Cultures cover the earth as part of God's plan. Humans are, are diverse and different, but they are unified in their humanness. And then he says that he determined their allotted periods. He said, okay, the Greeks are going to exist here at this time, and the Americans are going to be here then, and the Russians will be there, and the Iraqis will be there, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, uh, the Aztecs. Uh, and, and, he, and he has determined, determined the allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. Why has God fractured humanity in this way after the fall? So that they would seek him. So that they would look for God. The frustrations of our ways and our desires and lives, the, the, the fact that our lives don't often work with the resources that we have in front of us that we've been able to earn by our own hand is so that we will say, there is not enough at my disposal to make my life work. I need God. And when we do that, God's like, yes, they understand. But we don't like that. We don't want to seek God. We want to be independent and powerful. This is part of the fundamental reality of the fall. 
And so what we do is we invent lights and generators and that nasty shelf milk, that Parmalat stuff that doesn't go bad. It's like, it's like forever milk that's gross. And Twinkies so that we don't need God. We want the cream filling and the birthday cake and we want to do it ourselves and not be dependent on anyone else. That's not what it means to be a creature. To be a creature is to be dependent. Paul's laying hold of this idea there that we're all the children of God. Look, your poets say it. We're indeed his offspring. In him we live and move and have our being. And Paul affirms that that's true. It is true. We are all the children of God by creation. But the Bible goes on, as Paul will, and teaches us that we're all children of wrath by our nature. We're all children of God, aren't we? Well, yeah, but... We're only children of God, children of the living God, children who have life by virtue of his adopting grace when we put our faith and trust in Christ and repent of our sins. Paul says here that the, all their flailing and all their ignorance and all of their unknowedness is something that they need to repent of. They're morally culpable for the fact that they are, are living in ignorance and they need to repent of it because the truth is they should not be settling and being satisfied with their religion the way it is. They ought to realize that it is not fully fulfilling because they keep seeking something new. What they ought to do is, is to say, no, this is not good enough, and they ought to continue to grope for God, continue to look for him. Notice what he says in verse 29. He says, if like begets like, if... If, if God's nature is not that he, you know, we, we built God, we carved him out of wood, we covered him with gold, we built a little house for him, we stuck him in there, we make sure he's locked up at night so that no one walks off with him, right? You know, if, if, if that, right, if that's not who God is, an idol worshipped by human hands, served by human hands, then we ought not to worship idols. It's wrong to think of God's as idols. That's not the final dwelling place of religion. He says then, in the past, God overlooked all of this giant mess, but now he calls us to account. And what we all need to do is repent of ignorant worship that's rebellious. And to repent. And to put our faith and trust in the work that God is doing. Repentance is the foundation. We worship God so often in ignorance. But when the truth comes, the truth from God's word, we ought to receive it and, and bring our lives into consistency with it. Jesus tells a tale in the Gospel of Luke. Interestingly, Luke connects this up, and Paul will later preach this message and call for them to repent. In Luke chapter 18, uh, uh, Jesus shares that, that a Pharisee stands at the temple and says, God, I thank you that you've not made me like a sinner. You've not made me like other people. You know, I fast twice a week and I give away all this money. Thank you for that. But the tax collector who was right next to him beat his breast, would not raise his eyes to heaven and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Which one of those two went home justified? Not the one who thought he was serving God, but the one who came to God and said, I'm empty, and all my works are broken, and nothing is good. Repentance. I believe that written in the heart 
of each and every woman and man that's alive is the knowledge that not everything, or that everything's not okay. We need to creatively, carefully use our access to people to bring them to the point where we're like, you know what? I desperately need salvation too. And so do you. And so embrace it, receive it, go with it. We're all in desperate need. We need someone to save us. Not coming across like, I'm perfect, and if you buy this product, use this religion, you will be perfect too. Paul then points to the fact that there's an urgent need to to engage, to, 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 to respond to this reality, because future judgment is coming. Very quickly, if you just look down at the passage there, uh, final judgment is coming. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands that all people everywhere repent. Verse 31, because final judgment is coming, it is definite. Notice it says he has fixed a day. It is universal. He will judge the world. He'll judge all people. It is fair. He will judge the world in righteousness. There's not going to be anybody getting any, uh, any special favors on that day. And it's personal. It's going to be, we're going to be judged by a man. Not by God who's far off and distant and who doesn't understand, but by a man, the God-man, Jesus Christ, who knows what it's like to be a human and who has lived under the righteous demands of God and triumphed. He is both God and man. I'm not going to get into that right now. And then he brings up the proof of this, that God raised this man who preached these things from the dead. And then they balk. And they reject him. Paul engages long enough to get the gospel out, and we ought to as well. Let me just close it down by, by saying this. I have a bunch of other things that I'd like to say. Uh, I'll probably come back and say them at another time. Their response to this reality is they say, maybe we'll hear you again. Maybe, maybe, we'll, maybe, maybe, we'll, maybe we'll cover this one more time later. Uh, some of them reject him and, and go out. Um, we'll hear you again. Come back and talk to us later. As, as believers, and if you're here this morning and, and you've not yet trusted in Christ, I'm, I'm speaking to you here directly now as well. We need to make sure that, that when the word comes and we, we hear conviction from God's word, that we not quickly move on, right? What's for lunch? And that's, it's lunchtime soon. Uh, what's on TV tonight? Where am I going? You know, what do I need to do next? Uh, because the last thing the devil wants us to do, the last thing our flesh wants us to do, is to obey the words and will of God. Uh, Moses goes before Pharaoh and says, you've, you've called me because of the plague of frogs, right? You know, and the frogs are everywhere. You know, you lift a lid and a frog jumps out. You, you, you open a cabinet and it's full of frogs and they're all like pouring on you. And everybody's angry at you and they're, they're piling the frogs in great big stinky piles, you know, with the smell lines coming off of them. Um, and God, you've, you've asked me to take the frogs away and God's, God's good with that. God's going to take the frogs away. And this is Exodus 8.10, check me on this. You don't have to check me right now. Write it down, but you can if you want to. Um, Exodus 8.10, when do you want the frogs to go away? You know what Pharaoh says? Tomorrow. Really? 
Pharaoh's wife is like, what do you mean tomorrow? Now. Take them away now. The Bible says now is the appointed day of salvation. Now is the time to repent. Now is the time to say yes to God's authority and rule in your life. Because there's no guarantee of tomorrow. If you're a believer and you're like, ah, maybe someday I'm going to get around to sharing, you're never going to do it. Because today is yesterday's tomorrow. Does that make sense? Yeah. You're like tomorrow. Well, guess what? It's tomorrow. It's time to share. You're like, I got, you know, maybe someday I'm going to like really dig in and start to find promises of God that I can trust in so that I can live by faith. Yeah, now do it. I'm going to repent and trust in Christ. But first I need to don't do that. Do it now. Because there's no guarantee. There's none. God is good, but he is not safe. We need to make sure that we trust and put our faith in God, even when we are at our most peaceful, united, settled relationship with him. The Bible still prescribes fear and respect for him. Let's close in prayer. Father, I thank you for, for the opportunity to share. Lord, I pray that, uh, that you would cause this word to bear fruit in our lives. Father, we come to this word from as many different places there, as there are people in this room, Father. Uh, m- many of us have had stressful weeks. Uh, there's been disappointment. There's been pain. There's been stress. There's been joy. There's been victory. There's been triumph. There have been moments where we've said yes, and there's been times where we have said nothing is ever going to be good again. But you change things. You shape the course of history. You determine when nations rise and fall, Lord. You determine our fortunes and our failures. And you do all these things that we might turn to you and to say yes in repentance. So, Father, I pray for every heart in this room, Lord. You are the one who needs to work. If there's anyone here who needs to take that first step of repentance and put their faith and trust in you that they might be saved, I pray they would do that. Lord, for the rest of us who who have put our faith and trust in Christ and for years have sought you with varying degrees of faithfulness, Lord, there are a thousand ways in which we need to make adjustments and bring our life into accord with what you're saying. And so, Father, I pray that each and every one, knowing by the power of your spirit exactly what they should do, I pray that they would repent, put their faith and trust in you. Father, destroy a thousand idols today in each of our hearts. We make them as fast as we repent of them. Save us, wash us, we pray. We thank you for your grace and kindness toward us. In Jesus' precious name, amen.